David Victorson, welcome. Thanks for for coming on. I really appreciate you talking with me. And uh, wanted to uh, to start right in um, and ask you. So, True North Treks—that's a nonprofit that uh, that you uh, helped start uh, years ago. Can you talk about that a little bit, like what they do, and kind of get into that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So, um, True North Treks has been around since 2008. Is when we incorporated. <clears throat> I'm a co-founder along with my younger brother, Scott, his wife, Gwen, and my wife, Gretchen. And, um, you know, I grew up uh, really appreciating nature in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. My dad was a fisherman and a hunter. And so every vacation and weekend, pretty much, it seems we would be out in the woods or on the water in some capacity. And that left a mark in terms of just my overall need for nature connection yeah. and also the importance of nature on my my emotional health and well-being and and feeling restored and, and uh, reconnected um fast forward many years into grad school um you know we went obviously to the same program and um you know working for for me a lot of my focus was working in health environments so everything from spinal cord injury to cancer. And then after um, graduating, you know, I went to uh, my postdoc was in psychosocial oncology, where I was working as, you know, a psychologist or a postdoc in a cancer clinic, working daily with people getting their treatment. And I was in my late 20s, early 30s, um, just had my daughter. And I was coming into rooms of people who looked like me, who were at the same age level as me. Yeah. And I have to say there was a bit of a, you know, I had several moments of how I, you know, this is, you know, just it, it, it freaked me out that they were going through what they were going through and many of them would die. And um, it just opened my eyes to young adult cancer survivors. Right. Usually you see the TV commercials of the little kids, sometimes Aunt Jude's or, you know, a lot of the people we think of with cancer are older in life with support networks in place, but Young adults, you know, even now, but back then especially, were kind of this invisible, untalked about um, cancer group. Yeah, and, definitely. You uh, don't, you don't really hear. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, um, there was uh, uh, certainly a, a connection to that group, and the more that I would talk about and learn, talk with and learn from, they, we would hear that they have all these unmet needs during and after treatment. That many of them feel. Um, they feel disconnected from the life that they once knew. They felt like the power just kind of went out on their life after cancer. And it's a developmental period that is just so full of important milestones that it takes many, those who live, it takes many years to get some semblance of kind of getting back on track. And so um, the beginnings of True North Treks happened at that point where, um, you know, connecting with the reconnecting powers of nature. I was also working a lot in mindfulness and contemplative practices clinically and with my research, knowing how also that can be very grounding and reestablishing. And then, you know, this population um, with one of their biggest complaints being, they feel like they don't know anybody like them. So the, the power of deep social connection with people who have been through a similar experience. And so those things kind of swirled around for a long time, and we eventually just decided to 
you know, do something about it. And we started True North Tracks. And it provides an, an opportunity for extended time uh, together. So there's like a group, there's a little bit of like a group therapy dynamic. There's a restorative power of nature. Um, there's, and then there's also, you said, uh, mindfulness practice as well. You, you teach that, or that's, that's a part of what you all do. Yeah. Fundamentally those three things, we call them our three crucial connections. Um, you know, the, the one is connecting to nature after being through something as unnatural as cancer and its treatment, mm -hmm. connecting with, with others who have walked a similar path in as non-group therapy way as possible on purpose. I'll talk uh -huh. more about that if you want. Yeah. And then the last is connecting with ourselves through mindful awareness practices. So all three of those things are purposefully interlaid um, throughout the Trek experience to, to create this space um, with others that, like you said, is um, extended period of time in nature with other people for, you know, to, to recharge and reconnect in different ways. What, uh, what are some of the things that you see happen with on these trips? You go on these trips as well, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so what are, so you talked a little bit about kind of what the intent is and kind of how it's laid out. What do you see happen, um, over the course of how many days or I guess, I guess it varies a little bit. Yeah. Right? We have a couple different models. We started out, um, going into the backcountry for a week on backpacking excursions. And then we realized that we could really serve a lot of other people who were either overweight or just physically de deconditioned from treatment by going on canoes as well. So we do backpacking and canoeing treks. And those are usually five to six days in the backcountry of Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Minnesota, Michigan. And then we also have a retreat facility in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, that, that butts up against Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. Uh -huh. um, and that is a incredible um, in nature type of a place for people who still want to do what we do, but can't get away for a whole week or don't want to sleep outside in grizzly bear country. And right. they can still yeah. get connected in lots of similar ways, but it's more of a abbreviated light experience. And so, but to answer your question, what, what do I see happen? Um, I would say the most consistent thing that, that happens is, this kind of buzz and electricity between participants when they come in contact with and spend time with other people like them. There's just, it's electric. I get, you know, chills. Something is happening energetically. I can feel it when I, when I watch and witness these deep connections happen very quickly. For it's because of their shared experiences, because what they've gone through, or is it, is it more than that? Yeah, I would say there's sometimes just a knowing um, that they're with other people who have had their lives upturned for similar reasons. But then also over the course of the trek, there are conversations on trail, in a canoe, around a fire, in a tent. Yeah. And we explicitly train all our guides um, to not make it a cancer support group. We don't probe with questions about now, Johnny, it's your turn to share your cancer experience. Okay. We basically let them do all of that and they do it right away um, and without any prompting. And we just kind of sit back and we have um, our, all of our mindfulness yoga guides, um, you know, they're trained to lead 
mindful meditations and, and yoga, they're all mostly mental health professionals, social workers, counselors, psychologists. Mm-hmm. And we also have to do a bit of an untraining on them to also just help them come to the trek as themselves, as the great, cool people that they are, who know how to be authentic and congruent and kind of Rogerian in their approach uh-huh. um, without overstepping that, you know, we have to, some people we've had to just help coach to not keep that therapist hat on. And um, it's nice so to like have, the distance. So it's like distance, like to be a therapist versus the to be themselves in that kind of, is that what you mean? Like sort of. Yeah. Many young adults have just felt head shrunk so many times and places okay. in their treatment at the cancer center. Some love it and they really benefit from it. And, you know, it can be helpful, but our, our overall purpose is to bring these mental health folks there to teach mindfulness and yoga. And it's every now and then it's nice to have somebody there with some clinical skills in case somebody's having a bad time, they can pull them off trail and just connect with them and be like, Hey, is everything all right? Yeah. But otherwise it's, it's as, like, like I said, as non group therapy as, as we can to keep it just kind of normal and non, non therapy ish, um, you know, for, for, for the, the vibe. It, it has a supportive, it, the supportive aspect and the, very much the, for one of a better term, the therapeutic aspect emerges on its own. And it's yeah, like, very much so. there's like a need there and that this is, it just sort of comes out yeah. the process because of the need is so deep. Yeah, for sure. So you, you talked about mindfulness. Um, how do you, how do you explain it to the participants? Also, how do you explain it to others too, since you have, you know, that's part of your research been, been apart for, for years now. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. How do you explain it? Do you, do you, uh, do you all teach it in a, a secular way, not so is it, is it grounded in, you know, one of the established approaches is it your own kind of modified approach or what, like what kind of, yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk about, um, about that and how that's brought into the program. Yeah, absolutely. Like programs. So, yeah. We, um, um, we can't help but acknowledge its Buddhist origins and traditions. And we then very quickly will let people know that, by no means are they needing to ascribe to any one particular spiritual tradition to benefit from mindful awareness practices. We define it. Um, I usually define it as, um, you know, tuning in to our present moment experiences with qualities of openness and curiosity and, um, you know, self-kindness. Um, I, I kind of avoid the word non-judgment, um, because I, I just feel like it's impossible to not judge. Um, and instead I try to go on the other side, which is more allowing and accepting and, and with, with warmth and gentle kindness. Um, but beyond the definitions, we, we try to get people practicing immediately because that's right. really the best way to know what we're talking about. And then through jumping right into practices, um, we do some education on you know, what things you know, it is and what it isn't. And um, we try to, um, you know, kind of help people find it wherever they are and disabuse them of certain expectations they might have about what should be happening. Um, you're, you're probably familiar that, you know, in, in most um, mindfulness teaching in a group base, at least, you, you do something called mindful inquiry after the practice is done. It's a Buddhist dialogue traditionally that happens between teacher and students where you 
we basically let, you know, we let people go around and share things they observed and noticed during that practice. And we try to really keep it focused on those vocabulary. Like I observed the wind blowing my face. I noticed I was getting bored or antsy. And then we just, we kind of help them sit with that and unpack it. And it can be validating for them, for other people who hear that to know, okay, I wasn't the only one who was like, what the F is going on here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can also help people just kind of put together what it is we're doing and why. And, um, and again, it's, if anything were to look like group therapy, that might, but we also try to keep it quite focused again on, on just helping them observe and notice um, their experiences in, in, in through this lens. So these are different times you might do like in the backcountry, like just sort of to sit or to do a sitting meditation or walking meditation or some sort of <clears throat> um, mindfulness practice while doing, while engaged in activity, maybe yeah. gathering wood or whatever it might be. Yeah, or, we, yeah. We, we, we usually start each morning with some kind of mindful movement um, in a beautiful uh-huh. place along the river or you know, on a mountaintop, we'll do some kind of yoga and we usually end each day, depending on the group level of, of energy, around a fire where there'll be more of an extended practice. But then throughout the day, we just let wherever we are, to, you know, dictate to us where we might pause, where right. we might do a mindful silent paddle or a silent hike or, or eating or, or different things. And those just kind of show up, you know, to us in different ways. So I imagine you must have people, some people are like, I ask like, why is this important? Like, why are we doing this? Like, how does this relate to anything else? You know, and how does this benefit? Like, what do you see as, can you draw the connection between do, engaging in that kind of practice um, and sort of the, the benefits of it to the, the people involved in the program, to the, survive, the, uh, the cancer survivors and, uh, and to others too, that maybe that, you, that, have, that have been involved. Absolutely. You know, and everybody comes to it from different places. Some have already done it and tried it and are proponents of it. Other people are somewhat skeptical. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there certainly can be a dispositional personality aspect to it um, where you might help them see it slightly differently, depending on maybe how, you know, where they where they are um, interpersonally. But for, for, you know, at its base, we, we help people get in tune with things. And that can be as simple as really savoring and appreciating um, their morning coffee around a fire. And it, it can be basic stuff like that. And then other people, because of where they are, they take it to their cancer journey. And they, they, they bring it to impermanent concepts of impermanence or... Um, you know, different, bigger things that can emerge when you, when you sit and practice. So we see it manifest in different ways. We try to keep expectations low and let people know we're just here to plant some seeds. Our goal is not that you're going to walk away, you know, all being yogis or meditators. Some of you may never do this again. Some of you, this might be the beginning of it. Um, But, you know, we've collected data on our programs and the majority, you know, of people talk about feeling much more efficacious in their ability to continue to do this, which is for us like a huge win. If you can mm-hmm. feel more confident and at ease with trying it, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah. 
So the uh, so it can it can really uh, positively affect people uh, long long term. How does it help, um, or does it help? To what extent does it help um, with the you know experience of discomfort, which is very common with people going through chemotherapy or just even being in the backcountry um, and maybe having all sorts of some still have health issues or have health issues. Um, yeah. Also, it can be, you know, challenging in, to be in a canoe all day or to be carrying a backpack, that kind of thing. So how, how does it, how does this sort of practice, these practices, what you're describing this process affect kind of how people can manage or, or deal with unpleasant things in their lives, discomfort. Yeah. yeah. Um, does it relate to that in, in some way? Most certainly. And again, we, we try to let people draw conclusions for themselves to the extent we can. <clears throat> but every day comes with some level of discomfort, whether it's a sore back from sleeping in it on the ground for the first time in a while um, to being wet or maybe colder or, um, you know, sore, like you said, after carrying a 40 pound pack or, or, or canoeing. And um, we certainly invite people to, to notice those sensations and to see if they might be able to have a different relationship with them versus what their automatic reactive self kind of says it should be. And so that's the beginning, you know, sitting with, sitting with challenges or difficulties that are kind of at that level on the continuum of, of severity, you know, yeah. those are on the, the low end. Those are kind of great practice tools, like, like the breath. Um, but sitting with the sore muscles from hiking is a great way to help people see if they can have a different relationship with it. And then maybe over the course of the week, that might continue to evolve to sitting with other difficult things like their fear of cancer coming back or. So, so yeah, sitting like with, yes. Yeah, yeah. So sitting with means like, as opposed to trying to like push it away or, or get rid, get rid of it. Like, what does that mean sitting with? Like, what is, what do you, how do you sort of explain that or, or yeah. think about so that? It, yeah. It's, um, I mean, we use all kinds of metaphors and usually like a lot of times nature is, has like the most amazing examples right in front of us. Yeah. But sometimes we'll, we'll talk about, you know, you mentioned Rumi. It was awesome to see that last question. There's a lot of Rumi, a lot of other poetry happening all the time on our treks. And um, we'll talk about that guest house and the uninvited guest, the visitor, you yeah. know, coming and how, you can try and keep the door closed, but some of these things will keep banging. And what would happen if you just took a deep breath and opened the door and saw what happened? And um, so there's, you know, sitting with is to, you know, engender some allowing and it doesn't always have to be pleasant or that you like it. Yeah. But it's almost kind of like you're here, have a seat at the table. I see you. I'm not super happy you're here. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but I acknowledge yeah. you, you're here. And that's kind of the sitting with. And we know from kind of emotion regulation research that the more we're able to expose ourselves, kind of like mini exposure therapy, the more we're able to expose ourselves to those unpleasant moments, if, if the they're not so high on that severity continuum, but again and again and again, we can have a different relationship. They change a little bit and we can begin to incorporate them into our new schema 
And um, we never still will maybe like them or be happy about it, but we're able to tolerate it. Able to tolerate it and be and be open. I, I remember hearing about that that uh, that metaphor, that story in the act. I think that mm. uh, can incorporate a lot of a lot of those sort of yeah. Uh, there's a whole uh, the drunken bo- uncle. books of them. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of like colored colorful ways of of thinking about of like presenting that same concept. Yeah. Um, the outcomes that you've been able to improve. Um, you have that study that came out. Um, what, um, what, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm at Northwestern for my day job and I do a lot of outcomes research and outcomes have always been as a, as a scientist, it's, it's a super important part of just making sure we're, we're listening and learning from the people that we're serving. And so since our very first track in 2010, um, we have been, asking them to complete a pre and a post survey. And, you know, for the first five years, it was just that. It was a set of, you know, um, crafted questions and items that dealt with our three crucial connections. So we asked questions about their connection to nature and to peers and to themselves. And then in maybe five years in, we started administering some brief short forms from the the Patient Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System, or PROMISE. Mm-hmm. And PROMISE was a measurement system I helped develop. I was involved in that um, here at Northwestern. So I was really close to what the measures, you know, assessed and their clinical utility and, you know, how, how you could really see a person maybe be responsive or change in things like depression or anxiety or sleep. So we started giving these short forms of those three areas. And, um, um, one season, I had some extra blood spot collection materials in my lab because we collect finger pricked blood to look at um, circulating inflammatory cytokines or different um, kind of uh, proxies for, for, for bodily stress. Yeah. And so we had, I think it was like 19 people that season prick their fingers for us twice at the beginning and the end. And we, we analyzed the data and we saw that um, there were significant um, and again, this is pre-post, you know, yeah. single arm study, but significant changes, um, moving people from moderate depression and anxiety symptoms to mild or within normal limits, um, improved sleep, as well as significant changes in infl- inflammatory responses from being a week, you know, out, outside. Do you, do you think that those changes persist over time um, or Maybe the better question is to what extent do they? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I I know that from our, our lab research in other contemplative interventions we do, like yoga and meditation, mm-hmm. we see the emotional changes last about six months before they start to wax. We see the physical the fatigue, the physical function, the sleep. Those last about 12 weeks before they start to um, decrease. And so, no, I still think that, um, you know, you're uh, in the inflammatory responses are also, those are probably acute responses. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't think that you would see those persist. Um, you would need to keep doing things, you know, to work on that and keep them at a, at a certain level, I guess. 
is do do they keep doing the the keep doing part is um do they stay in touch with each other is there some you know like there there these are friendships that um then provide like social support and you know whatever yeah. else is that is that part of kind of what you all hope for or or observe yeah. Yeah, so we have a couple of ways that we try to help facilitate that. And then we also watch them organically do that. But we we follow everyone in their social media and see from that how people are being there for each other and connecting with each other in different ways. Some people get together on their own. Some people do other programs with other cancer support organizations oh, wow. with, with their person they met. We also have alumni treks. So you can go back and be with other people who've been on a trek in a different year or a different place. And we also let people, whether it's an alumni trek or not, we let people reapply to go again if they want to. We've had several people go on multiple treks. And then we also have free drop-in mindfulness classes twice a month on mm -hmm. Zoom that people can come and keep working on their practice that way. Do people... Uh, also uh, continue the practice on their own, like something, you know, the thing, some elements of like what they learn on the trip uh, or the trips, do they start to, to do that on their own to some, to, to some extent? I would say some people do, some people don't, yeah. um, you know, it just, I, we haven't, we haven't done a intensive longitudinal impact study to see how many of these things are remaining. Uh -huh. Um, all we have are more anecdotal statements from people, um, things they'll shout out on social media about how much, you know, TNT has meant to them over the years, how it was a turning point for them, how mm -hmm. it changed their life. Like people said, multiple people have said that. Yeah. And so, you know, systematically, I don't know how, you know, this happens for the majority, but it certainly is enough to keep us going, okay, good things are happening for some people here. So, so there's tremendous meaning for it, yeah. however that manifests itself That's <clears throat> yeah. for, for, for many of the people. But dealing with COVID for you all, and still are, um, can you speak to like your, your response to like, did you learn, like for other organizations out there, did you learn anything about what you could do that's going to actually impact your organization long-term? Like new, yeah. if it's, you know, doing things online more or you know whatever could, could you speak to that a bit yeah sure we so we had to cancel our 2020 season outright it was going to be our biggest one and that's just when everything the shit hit the fan and so we canceled yeah. that and licked our wounds and we actually though used it as a great year to regroup we hired some new staff we got a whole new data management system so we used it to work internally on some of our processes which was fantastic to be able to have that time um and um, the next year, we sent out a survey to all of our alumni and to all of the people who've applied. We have a long waiting list. And we just asked them questions about how comfortable are you going on a trek? What would it take for you to be comfortable? What measures do you need to be in place to feel okay and safe? Mm -hmm. We also started looking at other organizations like the Wilderness Medicine Institute, Knowles, and looked at some of their COVID protocols. And the good news is for us, we operate mostly outside. So our yeah. backcountry treks outside of transportation to and from the trailhead, um, getting there in the airport, you know, there were these little zones of risk. But then once we're out there, if we maintain some social distancing and change our sleeping so that people are sleeping individually in tents versus sharing tents, we could do some things to make it very safe. Um, 
We also, COVID made us start what we're calling bubble experiences up at our retreat facility, where instead of us going there and offering full-on treks, we actually are facilitating people bringing their own caregiver groups up there to use Walden, our retreat center, yeah. on their own. We set them up with things to do. We show them where the trails are and where the, you know, all these things they can engage in. But that's opened up a whole other avenue now of, of being able to get people outside and in nature just by you know having these bubble experiences, people in their COVID bubbles. Hmm. Yeah, I think you wrote you wrote about it in. Uh, by the way, I love the. Uh, oh, cool! Old you got school. that. Yeah, I, I love I love the uh, paper. Thank That's you. So nice. Yeah, it was a great idea. Like uh, old school. I'm sure a lot of people do. It's like versus just getting it, you know, via email or whatever. That was a yeah. really uh, that was a great idea. I don't know who came up with that, but I I love it. I, that, that would be moi. <laughs> nice. All right. Yeah. Um, so how talk about again for our other organizations out there um by interested you know i work with a lot of nonprofits who have to figure out how to continue to get money coming in um how do you what's your approach and um <clears throat> yeah kind of your general approach maybe some strategies that you have that, that have worked yeah i mean i guess uh, on one level is to practice what we preach to keep building the muscles of sitting with difficult times and fear as this going to continue. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? Like there certainly have been periods of time where it's been somewhat unsteady based on money coming in or, or going out. Then all of a sudden over time, you know, also, you know, we tell, we tell people, my grandpa Victorson would always is the quote that everyone still quotes of his is go slow and you'll go fast. And that has been a kind of a Victorson family, quote that we always say to each other. And TNT has definitely been based on that adage because we've all had to go slow. We, um, it's none of our full-time main jobs where most people are, are doing it on a volunteer basis. And so we have to do it piece by piece, step by step. And over the years, it's, we've grown. Now, the more we've grown, the more people you know, trust what we're doing. They can see that we have data they can see that we're a good ROI for their $50 or, or more. And, um, you know, so we do a lot of friend raising as much as we do fundraising. So mm -hmm. we truly try to um, believe in making friends and partners without having an agenda to try and get money from them. I mean, it's really, it's a, just, it, it's really, you know, made it possible for us. And then, those friends have friends and it just kind of all, we also have a, a sustainability model um, called our pay it forward pledge that we've had since the beginning. And it's where we provide everything for free to our participants from yeah. the flights and all of the stuff. It's about 2,500 bucks a person to go on a week long backcountry truck. Yeah. Um, you know, times 14. Um, and, um, but, um, but then we ask them to help us fundraise about half of that. Yeah. Um, when they come back for another participant. And so the, the pay it forward pledge has just been a great way for us to have some money coming in as well as people knowing about us because everybody mm. you know spreads it out to their own networks. And you find and you find people uh, participating in that like they they'll we, we do some more than others, some kill it and overshoot the goal, some undershoot it, some never set up a page. Mm -hmm. um, but 
on average, we're probably between 80 to 85 to 95% uh -huh. at some point people completing their pledge. You so your funding is most, second, but, yeah. yeah so, so you can't go on a second trek right. unless you've completed your pledge. Okay. So it's, you're, you're funded by like a lot of little, relatively little source, mostly little sources. And, and so you're some, not dependent. And then some foundations. Sorry? And then some family foundations. Oh, okay. Where I would say they're not quite as little. Um, they've, they've been, you know, huge pillars. Um, but, you know, but we are also very supported by the 50, 100, 250 kind of donations that come uh -huh. So you have like diversity and you have like some options. and Yeah. If you lose a, a funding from one of the foundations, you still have money coming in. Yes. It's not a, a, a lot of organizations have like, they rely on, you know, one, you know, one large grant or two large grants at a time. And then once that's gone, you know, they're, they're, there's an existential issue. Right? Yeah. We always are trying to diversify our portfolio and not get too uh, addicted to, to the crack of one big donor. <laughs> we, we try to, you know, it can be really easy and appealing to be like, ah, oh, we don't uh -huh. have to do our, we don't have to chase our tail this year and do all these fundraisers because of this, but we always try, we are like, that's not a good long-term strategy. So we're always looking to diversify that. Is, is there a, like a thing that you've learned just being involved in starting a non, and running a nonprofit all these years um, and what you all do that you, like, is there a main lesson that you've learned that you, you would love, like, be worthwhile for other folks starting or being involved in non nonprofits uh, who are involved in other nonprofits for them to hear other is there like a, a major lesson that was a long way of just saying what's like your favorite you know lesson learned that you'd like to share with other people oh man that was not on the list and uh if it was i missed that one um i man i feel <laughs> like i could write i am hopefully at some point going to write a book um, lessons learned because I've had so many yeah. of them through this whole experience. But one of them, the first thing that popped into my head was kind of cliche and Nike, but it's kind of like, just do it. Um, I, you know, whenever starting anything like this, you never know what's around the corner. You never know if it's going to last. You're putting yourself out there a bit. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if, 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 if it's true in your heart that you believe in what it is, just do it and see what happens. And um, there are some organizations that I've heard say, we don't need another young adult cancer support organization because a lot of people are, nonprofits are popping up. All yeah, the yeah, time. sure, sure, sure. And I have, I, I say to that, I have yet to hear one young adult cancer survivor complain. Complain. The abundance, <laughs> of, riches, the abundance of riches of all right. these things. So it's like, just do it and start it and see uh -huh. So you see like some, some people get, we all get, I guess, caught up with like analysis paralysis. Like you just kind of yeah. think about it, think about it. And just, so just starting it and not necessarily knowing like how it would, the how and all yeah, the details, I mean, you just, you just did it one step at a time. Yeah. I mean, it. of course there was some thought about, we tried to put our thoughts about a fundraising uh -huh. strategy and a business model and yeah, yeah, yeah. tried to read the book on nonprofit management. But at the same, at the same time, it's like, we could do that for 10 years. And we just had to finally just do it. And Got so, it. Got it. So what, what's a book that, uh, just out of curiosity, a book you recommend or like to give as a, as a gift? What's funny, uh, Yeah. When you, I like that question. I, that's the one question that I was like, what book do I give? And, um, 
again, it might be kind of cheesy business book, uh-huh. but it was one that a book, it was given to me by our biggest donor, the, the donor who helped us get our retreat facility. In my first meeting with him, before we had a relationship, I was coming to him to ask for money so that I could I could back out and we could actually hire a proper executive director. And this is probably like three or four years in. And right. I was scared and yeah. like, what the F are we doing? And he kind of said, David, I'm I'm not it's a great plan you've got here, but I'm not we're not gonna do this. And he said, You you can't and should not quit. He's like, You're the only one who cares as much as you do about this. And I've seen this happen. No one else is going to care at this point. Maybe someday, you know, it's a good idea to exit, but not now. And he, he went to his back room and he pulled out a book called The Go-Giver. You may have heard of that. Um, What's it, what did it say it again? What is it? The Go-Giver. And, I've never uh, heard of that. It was pretty popular about 10 years ago, maybe, in pop business book culture. Yeah. And it's a book of, it's a parable, but it, I would say it's a book about radical generosity. And it's a book about trusting that if you give everything away, good shit's going to happen. But it's not giving away to get the good shit. It's just trust that if you give away your book of your book of contacts to your your associate that you might be competing with, just kind of see what happens. And so that's a book I've given to my daughter. I've given to a couple other people over the years. Yeah. When, when we kind of get really protective and threatened about what we have and wanting to keep it and grow it. This book is just kind of about see what happens when you just kind of give it back and give it to others. What, what might happen? It's a beautiful kind of any religion kind of concept, um, you know, might, might posit these, these values. But so that was the first book that came to my mind that I have given to other people, but I'm a little embarrassed because it's kind of, it's not super, it's like this pop business book. Um, yeah, but it sounds like it's like it was super impactful. And I, I love these interviews because I always come away with a reading list. So and I, it's yeah. great that I haven't read it and I've never heard <laughs> it. I don't, I don't remember hearing about it. So I appreciate it. Yeah. You're, uh, I saw a roomy quote in one of the emails that came from uh, True North Treks. And uh, so I, I figured that might have come from you or from someone else. But, um, but so I was wondering what your, I love Rumi and I, I could pick, probably open up. Uh, Here we go. Yeah find any any yeah <laughs> that's great so there's a Rumi book also <laughs> potentially yeah there's tons um is there what's your favorite Rumi quote yeah the one that i have taped up to my computer um that you know for the longest time so i could see it regularly is let yourself be drawn by the strange pull of what you really love it will you will not be led astray um and for me that just really um, touched my heart because I do get this strange pull all the time. And usually my, my conditioning tells me to, you know, not listen to it and to, it's just, it's, it's a quote about trusting the voice from within Mm -hmm. and, and maybe following it and seeing what happens. So that's, that's been one that I really, really appreciate from you. That's beautiful. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. So I, how about you? Um, I don't know. There's a, there's a ton of them. I'm trying to, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just no, 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 no. I, uh, actually, I, so what I do is whenever I see a quote, I like, I put it in Evernote. 
So I, I'm going to cheat. And I have probably, I probably have a, you know, here, let's see. I probably have 30 or 40 uh, ever, <laughs> ever note quotes from Rumi. So I can just pick one real quick. Okay, this is one. I don't know if this is my favorite, but it's one that comes up and just, um, so your task is not to seek for love, but to merely seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Mm. Beautiful. It's amazing. Yes. So that how applicable someone from 800 years ago or so, um, <laughs> those, it's just, you know, it's like he is alive today speaking to us. So yeah. I really appreciate the, the time you spent here and I want to stay connected and, and, uh, definitely, uh, really helpful kind of, uh, your, your description kind of going through your experiences, going through what you all do and, uh, appreciate the, just the generosity of your time here and, and sharing oh, with us. Yeah. James, it's awesome connecting with you after so many years. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll talk again soon. I hope.